Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in His Word, is Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 19. But for now, maybe put a piece of paper or something there in Hebrews chapter 3, because we're not starting there. In fact, we won't make it back to Hebrews until quite a bit later in this morning. Because I think everything the pastor has to say in this text to us this morning about faith and salvation and how we help one another not to fall away, I think all of it rests on our ability to answer this question from the history of Israel. Why did the people of the Exodus fail to enter the promised land? Thank you for joining us here at Christ the King on our uh, ongoing study in the, in the book of Hebrews. What we have found many times already in Hebrews is that there are large narrative arcs of the Old Testament that underlie sections of what the pastor is communicating to his, to his hearers in Hebrews. And so this morning, we're going to go on a bit of a journey through some of those Old Testament texts. The question of why the people of the Exodus failed to enter the promised land. Probably not the burning question that was in your heart this morning when you woke up, but I'll try to change that because that's what's going to drive much of the sermon and because I think unless we get it, we won't get what the pastor is really on about. So that's my goal for a while now. <clears throat> Why did the people of the Exodus fail to enter the promised land? That's what's behind Hebrews 3. We'll see that later on. But to start with, let me say that it was a big deal that the Exodus generation could not enter the promised land. If you were here last week, you heard Roger preach clearly and helpfully about the Exodus. The Exodus that was God's deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt through his servant Moses. And if you know the book of Exodus, you probably know that God first met Moses in the burning bush that didn't burn, right? So that's where I want to start. If you would turn back to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Help your neighbor if they don't know where it is. Exodus 3 verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up, watch this, out of this land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Notice how right at the start of the story of the Exodus, the Lord's deliverance of his people from slavery has a destination. It has a goal from the very beginning. If you've been with us, you may remember how a few weeks ago when we were in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2, we were considering what the pastor meant there when he talked about such a great salvation. We asked the question, what is salvation? And if you recall it, I suggested that ultimately salvation is a place. 
that salvation has a goal. Or maybe I can now put it more accurately this way, that the goal of our salvation is life in a place. That's what we're beginning to see here in the story of Israel in the Exodus. Israel was to leave Egypt. They would be delivered from Egypt that they might live as God's people in the place God would give them. That begins to come out more clearly in Exodus 6. If you would turn a couple pages over to Exodus 6, verse 6, God speaks here again to Moses and he says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Why? Verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. You see there, it's not just that they'll have somewhere different to live, or even somewhere better to live. It's that they're going where they'll live as God's people, as the people who will know the Lord. That's what will define the people of God. They must know him. And oh, they seemed to get it at first. You know what happens? Roger went through it last week. Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. Pharaoh won't let the people go. So the Lord sends the plagues, culminating in the 10th plague that kills the firstborn of Egypt, but not the Israelites because of the Passover lambs. This is what finally gets to Pharaoh. You come to chapter 12 in Exodus, where we were last week. The account of the Exodus itself, about 600,000 men, the text says, besides women and children. Only those 600,000 men plus women and children know that the goal is to get to the land. Right? So that if you want to turn to Exodus 13, you see in Exodus 13, verse 11, Moses says, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. Moses talked to them about coming to the land as they're on their way out of Egypt. And so the Lord begins to lead them. And he's planning something, so verse 18 of chapter 13 says, But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the Lord goes before them by day in a pillar of cloud, and by night in a pillar of fire. And then chapter 14, the Lord himself orchestrates the great symbol of his deliverance of the people in their crossing of the Red Sea. The Egyptians are in pursuit, and Moses stretches out his hand, verse 21, says, The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind. And here we are, Exodus 14, verse 26, And Israel's now made it across, and the Lord says to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back on the Egyptians. And he does it. And now look at verses 30 and 31 of Exodus 14, because this is important to see this. Exodus 14, verse 30. We come to the narrative conclusion of this whole event. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. 
So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Please remember that verse. This is the starting block, if you will. Chapter 14, verse 30 of Exodus. The people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. And then they express this faith as they sing in Exodus 15, right? It's a song of Moses. Tambourines are going. Only notice how they don't just sing in celebration of the triumph over the Egyptians. That's the first half of it, but look at verse 13 of Exodus 15. Moses begins to sing about what the Lord will do, right? You've led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Only where will that be? The answer is in the land. Verse 14, the peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom are dismayed. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased, listen to this, verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. You see, what is it that's at the core of this promise given to the people of God here and all through the Bible? We've seen this before. It's that the people of God are to dwell with God. They'll go to his mountain, to his abode, and there they'll sing, the Lord will reign forever and ever, as you know, they do sing in the book of Revelation. Hebrews really only makes sense when you understand that this is ultimately what was promised Abraham. This is what was proclaimed through Moses. This is that towards which every step of Israel's history strived. This is what God had in mind from the foundation of the world. This is the heavenly calling that is ours as the children of God. This is why we need a great high priest, as we'll see later in Hebrews. But at this point, what the pastor writing Hebrews 3 would have us see is that in this moment of the history of the people of Israel, of the people of the Exodus, we learn that there's only one way you come to enter the promised land, the resting place of God, as Hebrews 4 will take us into next week. It's by faith. Which means negatively that there's only one thing that can keep you out of it. Right? And I, listen, because this becomes the point it's the same thing that kept the people of the Exodus out of the land of Canaan. And we don't have to guess at what that was. Don't, don't turn over the yet, but listen just as I read again that last verse of the Hebrews reading that we had this morning in chapter 3, verse 19, where the pastor says they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Literally because of unfaith. But now wait a minute. 
because we just saw the starting block in Exodus 14, verse 30, and it says they believed in the Lord. Do you know what the ending point is in the narrative of which that is the beginning? <laughs> it's over in Numbers chapter 14, and I would like you to turn to the right if you would. It, it goes Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers, so two books beyond Exodus. If you would turn over to Numbers 14, I want you to see where this all ends. Lots happens. We'll talk about a little of it in a minute. But I'm going to take you right to the end point. And here they are. Here's this Exodus generation, and they're at Kadesh Barnea <laughs> in Numbers 13. They're on, in other words, they are on the border of the promised land, on the border of the land of Canaan. And many of you know the story. Numbers 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan which I am giving to the people of Israel. So, you know, they identify 12 spies and Moses sends them in and they're in the land for 40 days and they come back and what do the spies say? Remember? Verse 28 of Numbers 13. The people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. Oh, but this is the land they've been promised. So Caleb tries to turn things around in verse 30 of Numbers 13, but the others say, no, we are not able to go up against the people, they say. And you sense pretty quick where this is going in Numbers chapter 14. And then all the congregation raised a loud cry, verse 2, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, look at verse 3, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fall on their faces, and then verse 6, Joshua and Caleb tear their clothes, and they say, this land is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, which is exactly what he'd promised to do from the beginning of Exodus, right? So now look at verse 9, and I want you to remember this verse. This is Numbers 14, verse 9. Joshua and Caleb say to the people, only do not rebel against the Lord. That's the key word. This is it. This is the final, ultimate rebellion of this Exodus generation. Caleb and Joshua are pleading with them, Do not fear the people of the land. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But then comes the response in verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. 
But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, watch this, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? Do you hear that? There's your flag right there. In spite of all the signs that I have done among, done among them. You see, that's the other end of this thing. That's the end point for this generation. Exodus 14, verse 30, on the shores of the Red Sea, they believed in the Lord. Numbers 14, verse 11, on the border of the land of Canaan, the Lord says, how long will they not believe in me? The judgment comes then, beginning in verse 21, Numbers 14, but truly as I live, the Lord's swearing an oath here, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. None of those who despised me shall see it. Well, of course they can't. Not as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. This is supposed to be where God dwells. God can't dwell with apostates who reject his very character and goodness. Something's wrong with these people of Israel. Verse 27, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? Say to them as I live, declares the Lord. What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. Verse 33. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. And that's it. It's over now. Verse 35, I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation. Okay, so now here's the question. If we're going to understand Hebrews 3. As we start to work our way back there, if you're this wilderness generation of Israel, how do you get from belief in Exodus 14 on the shores of the Red Sea to unbelief. And I'm talking final unbelief that results in judgment in Numbers 14 at the very border of the promised land, the goal of your salvation. And my answer to that is gradually brothers and sisters. You get to that point gradually. Because as the history of the people of the Exodus itself reveals, and I think this is what the pastor is referring to, and as we've said before in this sermon series, faith isn't a one-time deal, brothers and sisters. We must live by faith, walk by faith, run with endurance the race set before us by faith because we're not home yet, you see. The 
pastor of Hebrews is placing us on the border of the promised eternal kingdom land. And he's saying, don't be like the Exodus generation. Now, if you know what's between Exodus 14 and Numbers 14, you know it's not as though the people of the Exodus generation had been faithfully walking with the Lord all the way until the day when then on the border of Canaan they were suddenly afraid of the people in the land and they failed to trust him. Right? This is so important for us to understand what the pastor means when he talks about falling away from the living God. This is so important. This does not happen overnight. Turn back to Exodus 15 if you would. I promise I'm getting back to Hebrews, but Exodus 15. I'll just try and do this quickly. The people have been delivered from Egypt now. I'm back to the beginning. Exodus 15, they've seen the mighty hand of the Lord. They've stood on the shores of the Red Sea. They've sung the greatness of the Lord. I can't go through everything that's going to happen between now and Numbers 14, but just do the beginning. Tomorrow comes. And tomorrow, it may be that the Lord who parted the waters of the sea for us to walk through can't seem to make sure we have any water to drink. Right? Look at Exodus 15, verse 22. Immediately after the song, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Would you just make a mental note there that they're grumbling? The grumbling we read about in Numbers 14 didn't start on the border of Canaan. It started in the wilderness of Shur, but the Lord is gracious. And so you read at the, the end of chapter 15, verse 27, they came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. The Lord provided for his people. They can trust him next time, will they? Tomorrow comes Exodus 16. They set out from Elam. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I mean, do, do you remember what the people will say later on in Numbers 14 at the border of the promised land? It's the same thing, Numbers 14, verse 2, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. There's not a lot that's new when you come to Numbers 14. Moses sees what's happening here. Look at the end of verse 8, uh, Exodus 16, verse 8. Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord, he says, but once again, the Lord is gracious. There would be quail in the evening. There would be manna in the morning. The Lord is faithful. They can trust him next time. Will they? Tomorrow comes. Well, actually, there's a whole series of things in Exodus 16, but tomorrow comes Exodus 17. 
All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Remember Numbers 14? They tested him ten times by then, it says, though we don't know exactly what that refers to. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me, just as they would threaten to do to Joshua and Caleb in Numbers 14. Yet again, God was gracious. I mean, you, you sense the cycle. He sent Moses to strike the rock with his staff. Water came out to provide for the people. Only by this point in Exodus 17, we're beginning to detect the pattern. And so is Moses, I think. So look at Exodus 17, verse 7. And Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the wilderness generation that believed in the Lord in Exodus 14. <laughs> now, now, let's turn back to Hebrews 3. And it's going to be very quick, I know it. At the outset, I said... Everything the pastor has to say about faith and salvation in Hebrews chapter 3 rests on our ability to answer the question, why did the people of the Exodus fail to enter the promised land? Everything rests on that because the pastor's primary concern in Hebrews 3 is that his readers, and that includes you and I today, his primary concern is that we not be like them, brothers and sisters. We not be found to be like them. Now, I see three interwoven elements in verses 7 to 19. The pastor gives us, firstly, the example of those who were unable to enter. That is, the wilderness generation we've just spent most of this sermon discussing. The pastor makes them the example. Then he, secondly, gives us a warning, lest we be found to be like them. And then, thirdly, and this is the glorious part to which we'll pushed to the end, the pastor supplies a remedy to ensure that won't happen. So there's an example, and there's a warning, and there's a remedy, and I spent all that time on the backstory so that now the example, I hope, is pretty clear. The pastor quotes here, there's another layer here, the pastor quotes in the beginning of our text in verse 7 from Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. But he does that because Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11, already says what he wants to say. <laughs> it holds up the Exodus generation as the negative example of how not to be in relationship with the Lord. We're going to find out next week what was actually different about that wilderness generation <laughs> compared to the pastor's confidence in the, in the folks he's writing to in Hebrews. 
that's, that's for next week. But in other words, verses 7 to 11 of Psalm 95 here are themselves a reflection on the history of this Exodus generation that was applied in the psalmist's own day. We'll have more to say about that next week. But for now, the pastor is using it for his purposes too. And let's just read it again as the pastor has it quoted here. Verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says presently to you, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Remember what the 40 years was about? It was the judgment. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, so that generation that's mentioned there in verse 10 is the Exodus generation. And we know that a couple of different ways from reading this. <clears throat> First of all, the, the words that are translated here as rebellion and testing in verse 8, those are from the Hebrew words Meribah and Massah, which are the place names that Moses gave in Exodus 17. Remember, if you go back and look at Psalm 95 in the Old Testament in the ESV, it doesn't say rebellion and testing. It says Meribah and Massah. Moses called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, Exodus 17, verse 7, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord. So this is a reference to this point in the life of the Exodus generation, after the Exodus, but before Sinai, and it's early on. But then secondly, as we saw, this pattern of testing and quarreling, that is what will find its culmination in the Great Rebellion at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 14 on the border of the Promised Land. So Psalm 95 has some clear references to that incident as well. The 40 years in verse 9 is a reference to the judgment that came on the people following their decision ultimately not to go into the land. We saw how that was also the point at which, as verse 11 of our passage puts it, the Lord swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You could also look at Deuteronomy 1, verses 34 and 35 for that exact wording, and it's, it's recounting the same event in Kadesh Barnea. So you see, the psalm itself is a snapshot of this wilderness generation. So that considering the other lines in it, given everything we've talked about, we, we shouldn't be too surprised, I don't think, by the way that they're characterized in verse 10. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Their wandering from the Lord wasn't just temporary or occasional. It had a clear trajectory to it from early on. We saw, yes, at the start there was belief. But clearly by the end there wasn't. But we're not surprised. Again, Numbers 14, verse 22 says, The people had tested the Lord ten times and refused to listen to his voice. It wasn't anything new. Fundamentally, what is the issue? The issue is they did not know God's ways as he had intended for them. 
Despite seeing God's actions on their behalf, the wilderness generation didn't truly learn who he was. They did not know God's ways with the result that they did not know God. And so beginning in verse 16 of our passage, the pastor then draws out the example of that generation for his hearers in a series of questions at the end of it, right? Verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Remember Caleb and Joshua? Do not rebel against the Lord. They do the opposite of what the psalm instructs. The answer, well, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? It was. Verse 17, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Answer, was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Remember the judgment that the Lord pronounces in Numbers 14? But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. It's, it's, it's the same event. The sin of rebellion was clearly intentional. Then verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Well, those who were disobedient. Okay, we've talked enough about that, I think. So with that example of the Exodus generation clearly in view now, the pastor gives his warning in verse 7. He uses the words of Psalm 95. He does it twice in these verses, right? Quotes this line, today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, Pastor Warns. That's similar in concept to what he says in verse 12, where after quoting Psalm 95, the pastor begins to apply it to his readers, hearers. It's the same warning in different words. Look at verse 12. Take care, he writes, literally, look, <laughs> look out. See, watch, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, you only understand that sentence if you've got the whole story of the Exodus generation in the backdrop, because... The pastor is warning them not to be led as the Exodus generation had been led by their evil, unbelieving hearts. And this is important here because how are we to understand this language of falling away? Again, I think if we keep this Exodus generation in view, the point is that, that we are to focus ultimately on the time when they come to enter the land and the people rebel. And I mean, it was serious, right? They wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb for urging them to act in faith. In other words, dear friends, I think this language of falling away is a, a way of, of talking about apostatizing. Literally, the Greek verb is apostaini. So I'll quote one commentator at some length here. He says, to fall away is the deliberate spurning of the power and promises of God through intentional and final disobedience. It is to act in such a way that one definitively rejects the reality of his power and the validity of his promises. It is easy, however, to miss the shocking force of this phrase. There's little evidence that the recipients of Hebrews were tempted by idolatry. Nevertheless, if they refused to live by faith in God's power and in anticipation of his promises, they will be no better off than people who have turned away from the living God. 
to worship dead idols. In other words, friends, to fall away isn't something that happens immediately. It's the culmination of a pattern of sin in our lives. The hardening of our hearts happens, as the end of verse 13 says, as we are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Which is just like what happened to the wilderness generation, you see. The heart is hardened by repeated failure to trust and obey, though the Lord provide until we become so callous to God's voice that we refuse to heed his call. Stone them, they say. Sin deceives us by causing us to see only the things of this world, not the possibilities of God, the promises of God. It happened to the wilderness generation who wanted to return to Egyptian slavery. The pastor says it can happen to us, to any one of us, which finally brings me to the remedy. <laughs> That's verses 13 and 14. The pastor urges us, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Just a clue, it's always called today. Right? Until the Lord comes again or you die, it's always called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see the pastor's remedy? It's so straightforward. Exhort one another. Do you know what that means? It means you can't do this alone. <clears throat> there is no such thing as a churchless Christianity even occasional encouragement doesn't suffice. Exhort one another every day, the pastor says. Dear friends, regular mutual encouragement and exhortation is needed to counteract sin's deceitfulness. Do you believe that? Or not? I think this means both encouraging one another keeping our positive focus on the good promises of God, no matter what the circumstances. No water for three days. <laughs> Warning one another, lest those benefits and promises be lost through disregard and disobedience in our lives. So I, let me just ask you an obvious question here as we close. Do you know the nature of the struggles that your brothers and sisters are facing in their lives of faith? I don't mean do you know everyone's struggles. How about just do you know anyone's in this room? I know many of you do, but maybe some of us don't. If not, why is that? Might it be possibly because Maybe you or I are not as willing as we should be to share our own struggles with others. Brothers and sisters, we have to know others. We have to be known by others in the body of Christ to be able to follow through with this command, do we not? As long as it is today, we are to do this. As long as it is this present age of testing with opportunities and dangers like the ones the Israelites faced, 
we must watch out and exhort one another regularly in the things of the faith. So, let me just give you a terrifically practical suggestion. If you're not part of a small group or in a one-to-one -one Bible study, in some way in your life, those things are not realities where this is happening, then talk to Roger. <laughs> because Roger is a pastor who gets the importance of this concept and command better than almost anyone I know. I urge you to find a way for this to become a reality in your life if it isn't. And if it is, then double down on your commitment to it. That none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin is at the highest level of pastoral priority for me at Christ the King. The highest level. Why is that? Well, it's because of what verse 14 says. Ultimately, though, this pushes us towards next week. For the pastor says, verse 14, don't miss it. We have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end, which may to you sound threatening, but I don't think that's exactly the nuance. You see how the logic is working here? Holding on to the reality of our faith is what we do when we've come to share in Christ, which the pastors already said in chapter 2, his hearers have done. We've been there. This is what you do, so what does that mean for your lives in the church? It means exhort one another every day. In other words, the pastor isn't here directly calling into question their salvation. He's warning them. But here he is reminding them that God's very way for his children to come to the heavenly promised land to enter his rest, as chapter 4 tells us, is still the promise of entering his rest still stands. Chapter 4, verse 1. It is precisely through vigilance and watchfulness and obedience and exhortation. Because there's only one way you come to enter that promised land. It's by faith. And you can't do it alone. <laughs> Next week we'll consider a bit more about what, what is the fundamental difference between us and this wilderness generation of Israel on the whole. But let this be the, the note that sounds at the end here. We must speak to each other in ways that help us not be deceived by sin. We must fight to maintain each other's faith. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. May that be true of us here at Christ the King. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.